Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the Court, in granting summary judgment against my clients, Alpha and Omega USA, Inc., doing business as Travel on Transportation, and Victor Cernotinsky, the District Court disregarded established summary judgment standards by improperly weighing the evidence, failing to consider disputed material facts in a light most favorable to my clients, and on many issues, completely disregarding the defendant's evidence that contradicted some of the key factual findings supporting the District Court's grant of summary judgment. In its summary judgment order, the District Court indicated that defendant's contradictory evidence was unreliable and cites Scott v. Harris, which said, the U.S. Supreme Court said in that case, opposing parties, when they tell two different stories, one which is blatantly contradicted by the, the record, so that no reasonable jury could believe it, a court should not adopt that version of the facts for purposes on ruling on summary judgment. But in this case, the District Court didn't identify what it thought were facts that were, or factual assertions rather, that were blatantly disregarded by the record. And indeed, the Secretary in his briefing doesn't identify any of these assertions that are supposedly blatantly contradicted by the, by the record. To the contrary, the summary judgment record in this case shows that there are numerous, numerous genuine issues of material fact that exist such that the District Court erred in granting summary judgment. This appeal involves six issues, the first being the threshold issue, Your Honors, and that is whether an employee-employer relationship existed between my clients and the drivers. Because uh, that type of relationship, of course, is a prerequisite for bringing any sort of claim under the Fair Labor Standards Act. If the court, if this court determines that the district court was correct in finding as a matter of law that such a employer-employee relationship existed, then several other issues come into play. The first being whether the defendants knew or should have known that the drivers were working in excess of 40 hours per week. Secondly, whether the waiting time that existed between trips should be counted as compensable working time. Next, uh, whether the drivers were actually accurately recording the pickup and drop-off times in performing their services. Next, whether in connection with the claim that some of the drivers did not earn a minimum wage, whether that was actually attributable to them deliberately choosing not to work enough hours in order to generate at least a minimum wage. And then finally, whether the defendants are liable for liquidated damages because in, in the district court's eyes, my clients failed to meet their burden of showing good faith and reasonable grounds for believing that they were not in violation of the Fair Labor Standards Act. Now, as to the threshold question in this case, Your Honors, that being whether the drivers were employees or independent contractors, the, the courts have recognized that ultimately this is a legal question 
However, it may not be resolved on summary judgment if there are disputed material facts, and that is the case here. Are any of the factors in the economic realities test that um, seems to apply only here, um, are any of those factors more important than the others, or do we balance them all out? Your Honor, I think the courts have indicated, at least in my reading, that the most important factor is probably the control factor, whether the purported employer uh, either had a right to control or actually exercised control over the purported employees. Well, and that's what the common law says. I have a lot of experience dealing with it both at the state and federal level, and control tends to be the most important factor. I just was curious whether that carried over to the realities test, too. I believe it does, Your Honor. And I think another core factor would be whether the uh, workers at issue had an opportunity for profit and loss in performing their services. But indeed, I believe the, uh, the core factor is the control factor. Now, there, there seems to be a distinction between, and, and some courts have expressed that factor as uh, whether the purported employer had the right to control and other courts have expressed it as whether the purported employer actually exercised the amount of control necessary. Yeah, so I'd like to, to dig into that uh, factor a little bit deeper. Uh, so it's my understanding that there is contradictory evidence on the control factor and that one of the issues is whether or not drivers could decline trips and whether they could set their own hours. Could you address uh, the testimony on that and why you think there's still a dispute of fact on that issue? Your Honor, the, the record consists primarily of the deposition testimony of the dispatcher that performed dispatching services for my client for 20 years. And in contrast, the evidence offered by the uh, secretary consisted of three, in our view, cherry-picked drivers that really are not representative of the 21 drivers that are at issue in this case. So Maria... Cernotinsky, who is the dispatcher and indeed the sister of my uh, client, Victor Cernotinsky, she testified that they absolutely have a right to decline any trips, that they don't suffer any penalty for doing so, that they set their own schedule, they can begin their day at whatever time they desire, they can end their day at any time they want, they can take uh, breaks during the course of the day, uh, Maria Cernotinsky testified that some drivers will indeed want to have a trip assigned to them right after they complete one trip, while others might take several hours off to do whatever. My client doesn't even know what they do on the times, the waiting times between these trips. So it's our position, Your Honor, that there are numerous uh, fact issues in connection with the control factor. Um, there is, however, this distinction between the right of control and whether the, there's an actual exercise of control. And uh, one court in the Third Circuit indeed said that actual control of the manner of work is not essential. Rather, it is the right to control which is determinative. This court may have to weigh in on how to properly express the control factor. In any event, the district court focused on the uh, alleged exercise of control by travel on transportation. And the factual findings on which the district court based its conclusion that uh, travel on did exercise control 
were that Travelon's dispatch pressured drivers to take the trips even if they wanted to decline, that Travelon commanded drivers to work at specific times, the Travelon kept regular hours over drivers, the Travelon required permission to take breaks, the Travelon consistent, constantly uh, supervised the drivers by requiring them to submit travel logs for each trip and Travelon supervised the drivers every, every movement in their schedule. And we point out in our opening brief all of the contradictory facts addressing each of the findings that the district court relied in concluding that there was, uh, that the control factor weighed in favor of finding an employee-employee relationship. And I think, Your Honor, it is relevant to look at uh, the evidence that were offered by the parties. Again, the evidence primarily consisted of deposition testimony of Maria Cernatinsky, the dispatcher that had worked uh, in scheduling drivers for 20 years, and the deposition of Victor Cernatinsky, the owner and sole employee of Travel on Transportation. Was there any documentary evidence uh, that was submitted on summary judgment? I'll tell you why I'm asking that, because ultimately there's a, there's a line in the district court's uh, order that shows a healthy dose of distrust of your client's um, evidence, um, where I think he says something along the lines of, there's all this testimony, but it's just completely inconsistent with everything else in the record. I'm trying to figure out, he seems to be weighing things, but but there is an opening for if there's documentary evidence that blatantly uh, uh, contradicts the testimony, perhaps summary judgment would be appropriate on like a Scott versus Harris theory. I agree, Your Honor, but I... I cannot find any of this uh, uh, evidence that, that, uh, that, I mean, other than the three declarations that were offered by three different drivers that contradict the testimony of, for instance, Maria Cernatinsky, who indeed, we believe, has the deepest knowledge in connection with the relationship between the drivers and travel on transportation. So there were no procedures. There were Obviously, there's no contracts or anything like that that uh, would show an employee status. There wasn't much by way of documents submitted in the summary judgment record then. No, Your Honor, other than the, the written independent okay. contract agreements, which, of course, uh, address the right of my client to control the means and manner in which the drivers perform their services. Thank you. The secretary, in his brief, uh, cites to so-called strong factors of control that were exercised by Travelon. Uh, for instance, the Secretary asserts that Travelon required drivers to complete vehicle inspections and trip logs and turn them into Travelon. But the record shows, Your Honors, that the trip logs were not required by my client, but rather were required by the Minnesota Department of, of uh, Human Services and by the private insurance companies that paid my client. Uh, the vehicle inspections were not a requirement imposed by Travelon, but rather they were imposed by the Minnesota Department of Transportation pursuant to statute. It's our position, therefore, Your Honor, that in uh, look th that, that a special transportation provider such as my client, their compliance with government regulations that require it to exercise control over a driver, they don't evidence control by my client. Uh, they rather evidence the government's control over both the drivers and my client. And so they, that compliance does not, it's not indicative of control imposed by my client. And as such, uh, should not at all be considered in the control factor. 
Your Honor, uh, with a little bit of time left in my opening remarks, I want to address the liquidated damage uh, issue here. There, the district court found that my client didn't meet its burden of showing that they acted in good faith and had reasonable grounds for believing that they were in compliance. There was a previous lawsuit uh, that I represented Travelon in, and while there was no specific adjudication on the issue of whether the drivers were employees or, or independent contractors, uh, because the case did settle, it settled at a, a magistrate uh, settlement conference. We believe, however, that the activity that occurred in that previous litigation is evidence that my client, with my assistance, uh, acted in good faith and had reasonable grounds for believing that they were in compliance with the Fair Labor Standards Act. Thank you. Would you like to save the rest of your time for reply? Yes, I would, Yenner. Thank you. Ms. Moskowitz, you may proceed when you are ready. Thank you, Your Honor. May it please the Court, Laura Moskowitz, representing the Secretary of Labor. Contrary to what you've just heard, as Judge Doty's extremely thorough and well-reasoned summary judgment decision demonstrates, this case was based on a careful investigation and well-supported findings of violations under the Fair Labor Standards Act. When Travelon failed to come into compliance with the minimum wage overtime and record-keeping violations found under the Act, former Secretary Scalia filed this enforcement action. Enforcement actions like this one are important not just to obtain back wages for workers, but because when employers such as Travelon misclassify their workers as independent contractors and not employees, it creates unfair competition for law-abiding employers that properly classify their workers as employees and pay them the lawful wages that they are due. We urge this court to affirm the district court's decision that there are no genuine disputes of material fact raised on any of the issues in this appeal and that summary judgment is warranted for the secretary. Counsel, I want to ask you about um, control because um, so the district court, I'm going to go straight to the district court um, order. The district court concluded that, quote, dispatch pressured the drivers to take the trips, right? And you agree with that. Um, then the owner of the business, Victor, said, quote, they're not forced to do any trip. And Maria, who's the dispatcher, and apparently the sister, said, quote, nobody is penalized for not doing or turning down trips. Nobody. This is not how we do business. How can those two, how can that finding by the district court, or conclusion by the district court, be reconciled with that other evidence? I think it's really the, not a genuine dispute because the, what, what Travelaw's evidence is saying that, that they could decline trips without being penalized. And what the district court found based on the declarations submitted by the drivers and also the declarations submitted by a second dispatcher, Mia Oi, who corroborated what the driver's declaration said was that the drivers did feel pressure to take trips. And this mostly occurred really, there's no record evidence that, that drivers declined trips during the day. Most of the record evidence concerns uh, towards the end of the day when the drivers were ready to sign off or go home and there were less drivers on the road where dispatch would be contacting drivers and asking them to take trips. So you're saying that pressure 
is different from penalization. So you may, so they're pressuring them, but there's no consequence, and that that's enough to because it seems like a classic dispute of material fact to me. I mean, there's other examples too. Um, uh, there's a dispute over whether um, drivers had to work certain hours, and um, much of the testimony from Maria and Victor said that they didn't, that they got to choose their own hours, uh, which I guess I'll give you a chance to respond to that one, too. Well, for that one, I think it's undisputed that Traveline had basic hours of operation, and the drivers were expected to work during those hours, which was about 5 a.m. in the morning until 6 p.m. at night, Monday through Friday, and about 5 a.m. to 4 or 5 p.m. on Saturday. That's undisputed. Um, as to the question of whether whether any of these rise to a genuine dispute of material fact as to the hours or as to declination of trips, given the overwhelming, even if those were true and those were genuine disputes, we submit that they're not material given the other overwhelming evidence on all of the economic realities factors that the drivers were not, in fact, in business for themselves and were economically dependent on Travelon as their employer. I would also um, note that with respect to declining trips, where there's other indicia of control, for example, um, telling drivers where to go, when to go, and how to service clients, and having a pay rate be set, is similar to the Sixth Circuit's decision in the off-duty police services case, um, where that's considered to be control. And even where there's evidence of scheduling flexibility, which we don't believe that the drivers, uh, the record evidence shows that the drivers had here, um, just having some kind of flexibility over schedule does not negate control. And the Sixth Circuit said that in the Keller versus Miri Microsystems case, and the Third Circuit said that as well. Well, one of the things that concerns me, and I, I actually don't know where this comes from. It might have come from Maria, but I, I remember something in the record along the lines of, you know, if somebody just decides one day they don't want to work, we don't force them to work. They can stay home. They can, you know, and then I think there was even one piece of testimony that suggested if somebody rolled in outside of those hours or later than the start of those hours, that was fine too. I just, I can't figure out. It just seems like there's so many, so many, so much, so much evidence that's a loggerheads with each other, how we could, how we could trust the district court's conclusions on these, on these specific matters. Again, I would say that it doesn't rise to a genuine dispute because, well, a genuine dispute of material fact, because ultimately, even if those things were true, we submit that that doesn't change the overall outcome given the other overwhelming evidence on the six economic realities factors. Do you, do you agree, though, with opposing counsel that control is the most important of the six factors, or would you say we have to balance them all equally? What's the, what's the government's position on that? So historically, the government's position, as you noted, is, is different than the control test under common law. Under the um, economic realities test, it's really as a matter of economic reality, what were the workers in business for themselves or were they economically dependent on the employer? And those are typically analyzed through these economic realities factors. And this court has noted in Carlson, for example, when it affirmed a jury verdict that said, no one of these factors controls. Um, it's, a, it's an overall legal conclusion that looks at, as a matter of economic reality, are the workers in business for themselves? So at, I would say that the governor's position, I should also note for the court, um, as of about two days ago, the Eastern District of Texas issued a decision in stating a rule regarding independent contractor classification under the Fair Labor Standards Act that does focus on control and opportunity for profit or loss as, as the core factors. The district court said that that rule is in effect as of March 8th of 2021. So it's not pertinent to the investigative period in this case, or the time period in which the violations were determined. So, Ms. Moskowitz, are you, are you telling us that uh, a reasonable jury could look at the evidence and find that 
three of the factors weighed in favor of an independent contractor status, but that the court, as a matter of law, could say, well, the other three weigh in favor of employee status, and so that as a, a matter of law, I'm going to uh, rule in favor of uh, employee status. Yes, okay. I would say that, Your Honor. Because, the, and this court had uh, enunciated that again in Carlson, that uh, it is ultimately a legal conclusion as a matter of economic reality, whether the workers are employees or independent contractors. Um, and that any of those factors, that there's not a technical application, that's not just add up three plus three, it's really a legal conclusion as to the employment status. At what point is the district court usurping the role of the jury then in that process? Well, the district court certainly has a role at summary judgment, which Judge Doty exercised properly here. He didn't improperly weigh evidence or make credibility determinations. He examined very thoroughly the record in the case. Well, okay, you just mentioned credibility determinations. I, it seems to me that the district court may have done that. I, I believe the d district court really made a determination based on the record evidence. Um, not not a credibility determination. And the district court is charged with, at summary judgment, looking at all of the evidence, look, viewing it um, in the light most favorable to the non-moving party and determining, could a reasonable juror, given this evidence, find in favor of the non-moving party? And should, Judge Doty did that very carefully here uh, and determined that the, the workers were employees. They were economically dependent on Travelon as their employer. So when yeah, I'm actually intrigued by the, the the answer you gave to Judge Graz that it could be three and three and the jur and the judge could still decide it. What if it's five and one? Um, five say independent contractor, one says employee, and the and the district court says, well, that employee factor seems really important here. So I'm not even going to submit it to the jury. At what point, if there is a jury question, does it become a jury question in the government's view? Well, I think that where there are genuine disputes of material fact, it's a, it's a jury question. And the, the model jury instructions are um, in the Eighth Circuit for district courts in the Eighth Circuit talk about this, that these are really, um, if, if there are genuine disputes of material fact, then the jury should make special findings, but that the ultimate conclusion is a conclusion for the court so to make as a matter of law. conflicting factors is not a genuine dispute. There must be genuine disputes within those factors that would be material to the overall outcome, that would change the overall outcome given all of the evidence on the factors. So there's a very slim jury trial, right, in the, in the, in the government's view? I wouldn't necessarily say that. I think where there are genuine disputes of material fact, there are genuine disputes of material fact. In this case, this is not one of those cases that we think this is a close case. So in this case, we had Travelon's drivers driving Travelon's customers using Travelon's equipment with minimal skill required under close direction by Travelon, under a pay scheme established by Travelon, where the workers had no ability to exercise independent business initiative or acumen to affect their profits, and they were performing the essential work of, of, the, of the provider, the transportation provider. This is not a close case um, where we would say, you know, Judge Doty certainly looked at each of these factors and examined them carefully and found that each one of these factors indicated employee status. And again, uh, Your Honor had asked the question about um, documentary evidence. There certainly were uh, declarations by the drivers, as well as, as I said, corroborated by the second dispatcher, Mia Oi, that talked about um, the drivers not being able to take breaks, not being able to choose, that dispatch assigned them trips. They couldn't choose among them. They couldn't choose which of the rides would be most more profitable. They couldn't choose, uh, couldn't bid on a particular ride. Also, that they had to uh, take their vans to only one dealership for maintenance, that they really were not 
um, sort of, I believe that Travelon saying that 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 there were, was evidence in the deposition testimony that the drivers were able to ha exercise all kinds of freedom is really just not corroborated by the by the record evidence. With respect to um, the issue of liquidated damages, which this court has said is a, is a very significant burden that the employer has to show that they acted in good faith, to demonstrate that they acted in good faith and also with objective, objective reasonableness regarding their compliance with the Fair Labor Standards Act, we um, submit that in this case, Travelon has not met that burden and that liquidated damages were proper as Judge Doty found both because uh, as an evidentiary mat matter, this was not raised um, during discovery. It was raised for the first time in response to the Secretary's motion uh, for summary judgment regarding the advice of counsel in the prior litigation regarding the, the, uh, the Farah case. And uh, this was an assertion made in a brief. Um, the Secretary was not able to analyze this issue of, of attorney advice of counsel regarding the proper status of the drivers under the Fair Labor Standards Act. Um, but we also submit that even if that does raise a genuine dispute of material fact, that here it wasn't objectively reasonable after Travelon received two adverse rulings in the district court case, the FARA case. Um, none of them were exactly on the merits of the independent contractor status, but really went to some of the main issues that Travelon is making here today, uh, that it would have been reasonable that in order to meet the objective reasonable test that Travelon would need to seek additional advice. Are there any further questions that I can answer for the panel? In closing then, thank you for your time. Thank you um, for your consideration of this case. We strongly encourage this court to affirm Judge Doty's well-reasoned and thorough decision as there are no genuine disputes of material fact. And the drivers certainly were not in business for themselves and were dependent on Travelon as their employer as a matter of law. Thank, thank you, you. Ms. Menenko, you may uh, proceed with your rebuttal. And I'm going to go ahead and start off with a question. I may need to give you some more time. But as I understand it, Ms. Moskowitz is telling us that even if we find that there are uh, material factual disputes as to some of the factors, you still lose because the district court can find as a matter of law that there's still an employee-employer situation. I strongly disagree, Your Honors. Uh, um, as I was preparing for this oral argument, I did run across a case uh, out of the Northern District of Georgia. Uh, it's Kellogg, K-E-L-L-O-G-G -G versus Fannies, Inc. It's 467 F SUP 3rd, 1296. In that case, the court weighed all six factors. And uh, uh, it determined that while five of the factors seemed to favor employee-employer uh, relationship, that the control factor had numerous 
disputed issues of material fact. And as a, as a result, the, district, or the uh, motion for summary judgment uh, was denied. And so it's our position, Your Honor, that uh, it is the totality of the circumstances and that there indeed can be situations, and admittedly, there are factors in this case that would weigh in favor, perhaps, of employee status. The integral uh, factor, the uh, permanency, perhaps. But all told, uh, and, and most specifically, in our view, the most important factor, namely control, has uh, many, many material fact issues that uh, should, should have precluded summary judgment. Uh, I want to point out, with respect to control, there was a deposition of another driver uh, that's not mentioned in the Secretary's brief, but is in ours on page 32. Mr. Derevenko testified, and he was one of the 21 drivers, that the dispatchers told him he could do as many trips as he wanted. He testified that there were two or three occasions when he declined trips that were offered to him. He explained that he thought, quote, if somebody would not want to go, he would be able to decline the assignment. And Maria, the dispatcher, never told him he would be penalized for declining a trip. My time is up. Thank you, Your Honor. All right. Thank you, Counsel.